Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. Micah is in the Old Testament. It's towards the end. It's right in the middle of a bunch of smaller prophets. We've been studying through this series called Love and Justice. We are uh, in our sixth sermon today in Micah, and we're in Micah chapter 6. And I'm excited for us. We've got probably the most familiar passage from the book of Micah uh, that Joe read earlier and prayed through earlier. And so I'm excited to be preaching God's word for us. My name is Jody Sledge. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, welcome. We're excited to be gathering together to sit under the word of God. And so I'm excited for this message. I'm excited for this passage. So let's read Micah 6 together. This is the word of the Lord. And it says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let, your, let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, with what shall, we, shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall be the scorn of my people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. God, it is a heavy text. God, it reminds us of your just judgment, Lord. It reminds us that the ways that we live are important to you. The ways that we Sin are serious before you, God. But we also come to celebrate, even as we already have today, that there is hope for the sinner. There's forgiveness for us. There is a death that was died on our behalf. There is a resurrection that was raised on our behalf so that we might die to sin and we might live to you and that we might honor you with our lives. 
So God, would you speak to us today as we seek to do just that? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what we're doing here today is very dangerous. Maybe you didn't think that you were going to be doing anything dangerous today. Well, you, you are doing something very dangerous. You may have walked into church and not thought a single thing about it. And what in the world is so dangerous about what we're doing here? Why is what we're doing so dangerous? Well, it's not because the government might storm in here and shut us down someday. And it's not because all that evil and all that sin out in the world is somehow going to come in here and get us. The danger that we face today is empty worship. You see, what we're doing in here is so dangerous because we can think that our lives don't actually have to match our worship. We can think that what we do in this room each and every Sunday can make up for failing to honor God with our lives. We can think that our many songs with our hands raised will make up for a whole week of selfishness. We can think that our many prayers that we pray will make up for us not caring about the poor in our city. We can think that our many offerings will make up for our failure to obey the weighty matters of the law. You see, we can think that our presence here on Sundays makes up for our absence in the lives of the oppressed in our city. We can think that God is worthy of our worship in this room, but not worthy of our lives the rest of the week. And that's why what we do in here is so dangerous. You see, we've come to the words of the prophet Micah, and he's confronting Israel for empty worship. God sees the idolatry of his people. He sees the injustice they're committing. He sees the corruption of Israel's leaders. And he sees them attempting to cover it all up with empty worship. And God hates it. God hated it then, and he hates it now. But God, in his grace, has given us his word. He's speaking this word over us so that we might put away empty religion. And we might actually live the lives that he wants us to live. We might actually honor him with our lives. He wants us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. So today God has given us this gift of grace. It's his good requirement for us as his people. And so it's my prayer that we would hear and obey. So let's dig into our text today and let's see what it looks like to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Notice before we get to those three how God is bringing a case against Israel. In verse 1 and 2, God is speaking to Israel and he's bringing a case against them. He's literally dragging his people into a courtroom. He's calling on creation to be the judge in the jury. And then in verses 3 through 5, he gives his courtroom speech, so to speak. God recounts the righteous acts that he's done to save his people and to protect his people. You can see there in verse 4, he brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He gave them faithful leaders. He stopped Balaam from cursing them. And he brought them in to the promised land safely. You see, he did all of this so his people might honor him with their lives. But as we've already seen in Micah, Israel is filled with idolatry and injustice. And so when you see it the, later on in the chapter, in verses 9 through 12, God is calling out the people for their injustice. 
They have unjust business practice. They've got scales that are not honest, and so they're cheating people out of money. He says they are unjust in their behavior. They're full of violence and lies as they treat one another. And so God is going to bring his righteous judgment upon them. That's what the rest of the chapter, verses 13 through 16, are about. God is going to treat his people basically the way they're treating one another. He's going to bring his just punishment upon them. But look at verses 6 and 7 and see how Israel is trying to cover up all of this injustice and all of this sin with false worship, empty worship. Verse 6 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? That's a lot of rams. With ten thousands of rivers of oil. That's a whole lot of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Israel thinks that some extreme religion will fix their problem with God. They say, okay, God's angry with us. So let's give him lots of stuff and maybe he won't be angry with us. Thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil. Let's even go to the extreme to offer our children as a sacrifice to the Lord. But extreme religion is not what God wants from his people. Listen to verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God does not want extreme religion. God wants extreme obedience. You know, they should have read Proverbs 21.3 that says, To do righteous and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So God does want our worship, but he's not pleased with empty worship. He's not pleased with the kind of worship that doesn't lead us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk with humility. You see, the very reason that God saved Israel is so that they might live as his people. They might reflect him and honor him. So that's why he's so upset with them. He's saying to them, I rescued you. I saved you. So live like it. Friends, the same is true for us in Christ today. Jesus did not save us so we could keep living selfish, unloving, prideful lives. Jesus is saying to us today, I rescued you. I saved you. So live like it. I lived and died and rose again to set you free from sin. So live like you're free. Jesus is saying, seek justice, love kindness, walk humbly. And he's saying that not to earn his salvation, but because his salvation is already ours. Not to earn his love, but because his love is already ours. So Jesus has rescued us, so we should live like it. So how do we do that? How do we do justice? How do we love kindness? How do we walk humbly with our God? Let's look to each one of those now. So first, do justice. Justice is a major theme in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets. But what exactly is it? You hear a lot of people talking about it today. What actually is it? Well, at a basic level, God wanted his rulers to rule with justice, to, to make laws that were fair, to, to punish people who did wrong. I think we kind of get that with our modern justice system. But as we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 3, it's more than that. It's also about making wrongs right, or what people call restorative justice. 
Justice in the Bible is about seeing something wrong in our personal lives or in our community and then seeking to make them right. But it's also even more than that. Justice is about caring for the vulnerable, for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the foreigner, the poor. Biblical justice is all about fairness. It's about restoration. It's about caring for the vulnerable. And you see, the Bible calls us to do these things, not just because they're a good idea, but because God does these things. The biblical view of justice is rooted in a God who always does justice. Just in the book of Psalms, 20 times we're told that God is the one who works justice. We read one of them together in Psalm 146. The Lord executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. God does justice. All over the Old Testament, we see that God is the one who does justice. And he calls his people to do the same. But some people will say, yeah, that's the Old Testament. The call to do justice was for Israel. But we're the church, and so we're not called to seek justice, but to preach the gospel. That's, that's what we are supposed to be about. But as we said a few weeks ago, Jesus has a problem with that. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this to the religious rulers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is quoting Micah 6 and saying the religious leaders should have be doing what it says. You see, Jesus taught us to treat everyone with fairness. He taught us to make wrongs right. He taught us to care for the poor. There's no tension between preaching the gospel and doing justice. In fact, the good news of Jesus is all about justice. Our world is filled with injustice. One, another, one way or another, we're all guilty of it. I mean, at its core, injustice is simply a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're all guilty of that, right? I am. I know you are. Some of us have actively caused injustice on others. Some of us simply benefit from unjust systems. But however you slice it, we're all guilty in one way or another. And so God's answer to the injustice of this world was to send Jesus. So on the cross... Jesus died for the unjust by taking God's just punishment for our sins. And Jesus rose from the grave so that our lives might be transformed and so we might walk in the justice of God. So justice is rooted in the work of Christ and the work of Christ then compels us to go and seek justice. You see, we'll never actually do justice unless we're gripped by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. But man, when we are gripped by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, by the suffering he endured, by the undeserved grace, by the unfailing love of Jesus, that's when we'll truly love other people, and that's when we will truly do justice. So how do we do it then? Here's two ways that we can do justice. First, stand up for those treated unfairly. Stand up for those treated unfairly. This is basic to biblical justice that everyone is to be treated fairly. We're all created equal in the image of God. And even more than that, we are all equal in the body of Christ. And so we should stand up for those who are treated unfairly. We should do it on a personal level. We should do it at work. We should do it in our schools. We should do it in our communities. 
Let me give you a couple of examples of what that looks like. The very first problem in the church in the book of Acts was a problem of injustice. The Hebrew widows were getting food and the Greek widows were not. They were being treated unfairly because of their background. And so the church stood up to take care of this problem and they appointed deacons to seek justice for these widows who were not getting food. You see, they weren't being treated fairly and so the church stood up for them to treat them fairly. Here's another example. In his book, Generous Justice, Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of a Christian man who owned a chain of car dealerships. After they did some research, they found that black women were the least likely to bargain the price of a car. And because of that, they were most often paying more than everyone else for cars. The practice of bargaining is not illegal. It's not, un, it's not unethical, but it's unfair. And so he stood up for these women and he got rid of bargaining the price of cars at all of his dealerships. So the price that you paid for a car was the same price that everyone else paid. The man felt that his business was taking advantage of people with fewer resources. And so he stood up for them and he worked for justice. You see, all around us, people are being treated unfairly because of their race, because of their nationality, because of their background. And so we can do justice as Christians by standing up for them and helping them being treated fairly. Here's a second way to do justice. Speak up for those without a voice. So listen to Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Those verses are saying God has given you a voice, so he wants you to use it to speak up for the vulnerable. It might mean using your voice to raise money for a family in need. It might mean using your voice to help those with addiction see transformation in their lives. It might mean using your voice to help refugees find work in our city. It might mean using your voice to speak against racism in your workplace. It might mean using your voice to help international students get a fair education in our schools. It might mean standing up for people that no one else is standing up for and speaking up for them. You see, Jesus used his voice to stand up for the poor. Paul used his voice to collect money for churches that were struggling. James used his voice in his letter to call out favoritism in the church. We can do justice by speaking up for those without a voice. So stand up for those treated unfairly. Speak up for those without a voice. Now maybe you're thinking, I don't even know where to start. How do I even do this? Here's a good place to start. Support the work of Hope House in our community. Hope House is a nonprofit doing lots of great work in our community to seek justice for those who struggle. So pray for Hope House. Donate your money to Hope House. Volunteer with Hope House. Serve on the board at Hope House. Whatever the case is, mentor one of these brothers here in our church who are going through the 12-month recovery program. It's a great place to start. We don't all have to do everything when it comes to seeking justice, but God's word is clear. We all have to do something. You see, Jesus has saved us so that we might be a people who do justice. So let's look to Jesus as we seek to be a people of justice. Number two, love kindness. How do we do that? What does that mean? 
What does Micah mean when he says love kindness? Well, that word kindness comes from the Hebrew word chesed. You got to clear your throat when you say that word. It's the only Hebrew word you need to know. You don't have to know Hebrew to study your Bible, but it's a great word to know. It has got a wide range of meanings. It can mean kindness, faithfulness, steadfast love. Your version might actually say love mercy. It can refer to the love between a husband and a wife. It can refer most often to God's unfailing, never giving up love for us. But here in Micah 6, it refers to acts of kindness to the poor. Listen to prophet Zechariah in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy. There's that word to one another. And how do you do that? Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. When Micah is calling us to love kindness, he's calling us to love serving people who are in need. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor. And really, this is all over the Bible. The law of Moses calls us to serve the poor. The Psalms celebrate God as the defender of the poor. The prophets condemn Israel for mistreating the poor. Jesus welcomed the poor into the kingdom of heaven. The early church supported the poor. And the apostles call us in the letters to do good works for the poor. The Bible is clear on this point. God's people love and serve the poor. This is not just like a side project, like a ministry that some of us do. It's fundamental to our makeup. It's fundamental to our mission. But there's some dangers here. We could be so indifferent to the poor that we never see them and never serve them. That's a danger. But you could also go the other side and be so focused on serving the poor that you actually never share the hope of the gospel with them. You know, we actually see Jesus doing both together. Listen to Matthew 9, 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. There's Jesus doing gospel preaching and gospel mercy, gospel kindness. The gospel and mercy are not enemies. They are friends, and Jesus is calling us to do both. You see, it's the gospel that should actually motivate us to care for the poor. A lot of people in the world want to care for the poor. We actually have the motivation to do it. You see, without Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing that we can offer God. We come to him as poor beggars. Tim Keller, again, in the book Generous Justice, says, when Christians who understand the gospel, hopefully that's us, when we see a poor person, they realize they are looking in a mirror. We all come to God poor and empty-handed. It doesn't matter how much money we have. But... God in his kindness and in his mercy has given us Jesus. And by his life and death and resurrection, we have been richly blessed. We heard about some of those blessings last week as Josh preached for us. Blessed with deliverance from sin and death, with forgiveness and grace. Blessed with a peace that surpasses understanding. Blessed with a removal of any of our idolatries. Blessed with love and acceptance. Blessed with the Spirit and with fellowship with God. 
when we see the mercy and the kindness that God has given us in Christ, it leads us to show that same kindness and mercy to others. You see, a heart that is closed to the poor is a heart that does not know the love of God. If your heart is closed to the poor, you do not know the love of God. And that's not me saying that. That's the Bible saying that. Listen to 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the God's love abide in him? And the answer to that question is it doesn't. We're not saved by serving the poor. But if you're unwilling to serve the poor, that might be evidence that you're not saved. A heart that's received the mercy and the kindness of Jesus is a heart that will freely give that kindness and mercy to others. So how do we do kindness? How do we actually serve the poor? Here's two ways. First, ease the suffering of others. Ease the suffering of others. Listen to James 2, 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And the answer to that question is it's no good. What good is it to see someone suffering but do absolutely nothing to ease their suffering? It's no good at all. Oh, but I'll pray for you, brother. I'll tell our church to, to pray for you. That's the kind of empty religion that Micah is warning God's people against. If you see someone suffering, especially another believer, and do nothing, then what does that say about the state of your soul? Could you let your own children suffer like that? Could you let your parents suffer like that? If suffering of others doesn't move you to action, then there may not be saving faith in your heart. Again, we're not saved by serving the poor, but it's the evidence that we've been saved. And friends, we're surrounded by suffering. There are people in this neighborhood struggling to support their families. There are kids at school right next door with parents who at best are absent and at worst are abusive. There are women in our city selling their bodies just to keep the lights on for their kids. Our hearts should be broken for these things, and our hearts should lead us to action. You know, a recent study found that white evangelicals are least likely to believe that poverty is caused by an outside factor. That means a lot of white middle-class churchgoers think that it's their fault that people are poor. They're lazy. They're entitled. They're unwise with their money. And it certainly might be true in some cases. But just think of how uncompassionate that sounds, how judgmental that sounds. It sounds nothing like Jesus. We're to love kindness, and then we're to willing to be able to step in and ease people's suffering. So if someone is suffering, we ease them. That's how we love kindness. Here's a second way to love kindness. Encourage growth. So one of the best things you can do to serve someone who's poor is come alongside of them and help them grow. You see, when the Bible calls us to serve the poor, that doesn't always mean giving money to everyone who asks for it every time. We have to use wisdom. 
We have to seek the greater good in their lives. So this could be helping refugees learn English. It could be helping teenagers in this neighborhood learn how to get and keep a good job. It could be teaching families how to avoid payday loans. It could be mentoring one of these brothers from Hope House who is trying to overcome their addiction. It could be teaching a class in the jail to help break the cycles of incarceration. It could be fostering a child or adopting a child. It could be making friends with a widow. Whatever it is, Jesus is calling us to love kindness. And again, maybe you're like, I don't even know where to start. How do, what do I even do? Well, another way is to support the work of Refuge Bowling Green. So Refuge Bowling Green is a nonprofit that two of our members of this church, Daniel and Alice Tarnogda, started. They're doing lots of great ministry for refugees in our city. So pray for them, donate money to them, volunteer to serve alongside of them, serve on their board, support their work, whatever the case is. Again, we don't all have to do everything, but we are all called to do something. Jesus has saved us so that we might be a people who love kindness. So let's look to Jesus as we seek to show kindness to the poor. That's how we do justice. That's how we love kindness. And lastly, walk humbly. How do we do that? Well, Micah concludes verse 8 by saying we are to be a humble people. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we'll never truly do justice. We'll never love kindness unless we are walking in humility. You see, as fallen humans, our bent is always towards pride. Pride is a spiritual disease that ruins our love for God and our love for others. And God hates it. All over the Bible, we hear this teaching taught. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want to be on God's bad side? Then be proud. You want His grace? Then be humble. If we're to avoid the empty worship that Micah is calling us to, then we must walk humbly with our God. What does that mean? What's that look like? One pastor put it like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about thinking less of yourself and hating yourself and, and all of putting yourself down. Instead, humility is getting you out of the way so you can truly love others and truly love God. But you see, it's only through Jesus that we can be truly humble. Jesus came for sinners lost in the sea of their own pride. You see, there's no one more worthy of praise than Jesus, no one more exalted than Jesus, but he left the glory of heaven and humbled himself, and he became human. He became a servant. He became obedient to the Father, and obedience that led him straight to the cross. His obedience led him to the lowest of places a shameful, humiliating torture rack called a Roman cross. You see, Jesus took the punishment for every ounce of our pride. And on the cross, Jesus proves just how unworthy we are, but also just how loved we are. Oh, does he love us. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, offers us a life free of pride, a life free to love God and free to love others. And so if you are in Christ, 
Jesus has given you the gift of humility, and he wants you to walk in it. Maybe you're here and you're not in Christ. You've never believed in him. You've got to see that in your pride, you have led a life of rebellion against the holy God. And without Jesus, you will die in your sin. But Jesus offers salvation to anyone today who would repent of their pride and all of their sins and who would believe in Christ today. And so if you've never done that, if you've never given your life to Jesus, never believed in him, never repented of your sins, do that today. Let that be what you do today. Cry out to Jesus, call upon his name, and you'll be saved. And then you can join us in walking in the gift of true humility that Jesus gives his people. And here's what that looks like. It looks like listening. When our black brothers and sisters tell us of the struggles that they face, humility will lead us to listen. When Hispanic brothers and sisters tell us of the discrimination that they face, humility leads us to listen. Humility looks like listening. It also looks like learning. Humility leads us to see that our Congolese brothers and sisters actually can teach us about faith and about loving one another. Humility leads us to see that our poor brothers and sisters can actually teach us about trusting in the Lord. Humility looks like learning. And it also looks like leaning in. You know, pride causes us to push people away, doesn't it? But humility leads us to lean into people, to lean into people with different ethnicities, to, to lean into people with different political opinions, to lean into people of different nationality. Humility looks like leaning in. So brothers and sisters, God is calling us to humility. Jesus has saved us so we might be a humble people. So let's look to Jesus as we seek to walk in humility before him. You know, I'm thankful for the gift of humility in Christ. If you don't know, I didn't grow up in church. I wasn't a Christian, and I didn't want to be one. I was a good kid. I came from a good family, but I was full of pride. I didn't need God telling me what to do. I didn't want God telling me what to do. And so I wanted nothing to do with God. Man, God wanted something to do with me. God loved me. He pursued me in my pride, and he rescued me from me. I stand here today not as a perfect man, but I stand here humbled by the grace and the love of Jesus. I stand here humbled because not only am I saved by him, but I get to walk with him. He says, walk humbly with your God. You see, brothers and sisters, we get to walk with him. We get to see just how unworthy we are, and we get to see just how loved we are in Christ. And when we do that, when we see how unworthy we are, but how loved we are, that's when our have-tos turn into get-tos. That's when our have to do justice and our have to love kindness and our have to walk humbly turns into we get to do justice. We get to love kindness. We get to walk humbly with our God. 
Brothers and sisters, God is not impressed with empty worship. And he tells us what he wants us to do. This is his good requirement. So let's look today to our blessed Savior, Jesus. Let's do justice. Let's love kindness. And let's walk humbly with our God. And let's do it all for our joy and for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, what a, what a good word. Lord, Micah says it's the, the voice of the Lord. It's sound wisdom for us to fear your name. And so, God, even as we confessed earlier, there's so many ways that we wrong other people. There's so many ways that we turn a blind eye to other people. There's so many ways that we are prideful, God. Lord, but we thank you that in Jesus you have rescued us from us. You've rescued us from our sin and our idolatry. You've rescued us from the ways that we failed to love you and love others. And you've rescued us so that we might be a people who look like Jesus. So help us to do justice to stand up for those who are treated unfairly, to speak up for those who don't have a voice. Help us to love kindness, to ease the suffering of the people around us, and to encourage growth in their lives. And God, help us to walk humbly before you. If there's any here today who don't know Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they would come and receive His grace and His mercy and His kindness and His love. Help them to repent of their sin and of their pride. And Lord, help them to come to Jesus today. And God, for those of us in Christ, would you help us to walk in that humility? To listen, to learn, to lean in. And to love you, to treasure you to walk with you all the days of our lives. God, may we never think that what we do in this room makes up for a life that fails to honor you. We thank you for the gift of Christ. May we honor you for that gift. Would you help us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.